Shalom Aleichem, everybody. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to welcome everybody, and especially our friend David, who was able to make it this week. And Dubi is here again. We really appreciate it. And everybody else, a big Yashar Kayach. And also, big thank you to our friend Ari Hartman for, once again, single-handedly taking care of the food situation, as he does every single week, ordering and picking up. We very much appreciate it. And also, a shout-out to our friends at Carve for always going above and beyond and with the delicious food that they prepare. We wish them lots of atzlocha and their endeavor of the new takeout right here at ShopSmart. Tonight also is the yard site of my wife's grandmother, Esther Yehudis Bas, Yankov Mordechai. So uh, we hope that any learning or chizuk that comes out of this year should be for her Eli Neshama. And she also should be a Melitza Siyosha, a good debate for her Mishpacha and all of us and all of Klai Yisrael. So, Parshas Yisrael, we read about the greatest revelation of Shechina in history. Really, the greatest event that happened in history. The Pasuk tells us, by We can imagine what they saw, what they heard, the sounds, the thunder, the fire, the shoifer. And above all of that, they heard the words of the Rebbeinah Shalvei. The Pasuk tells us, the Pasuk tells us, also describing this Maimad, Out of that fire and smoke came the voice of the Rebbeinah Shalvei. And Klai Yisrael, each and every one of us, heard it. Heard the voice of the Rebbeinah Shalvei. And this farm tell us that this Lushen of Panim B'Fanim, face to face, indicates that Klai Yisrael by Maimad Har Sinai reached an unprecedented level of Nevuah. We know that every single Navi, he gets his Nevuah, but the Rambam describes how it worked. He's not able to be fully conscious when he has a Nevuah, because the presence of the Rabbeinu Shalalim coming and telling him a message is too overwhelming for the human to, um, to deal with. And the male person has to be in somewhat a level of semi-consciousness or unconsciousness, and then he has the vision, the, the Nevuah, which the Rabbeinu Shalalim appears to him in. However, by Moshe Rabbeinu, that was not the case. As the Pasuk tells us, in Pashas Ba'aloischa, Pe'el Pe'adaber Boy, Bemar Evaloi Bechidois, and also in Pashas Ba'aloischa, when describing, describing Moshe Rabbeinu, the Torah tells us that, like, Kom Oid Navi Be'isol Kemoshe, Asher Yedoi Hashem Ponim Al Ponim. Moshe Rabbeinu was the only Navi who was fully present, fully conscious, when the Rebbeinu shall let him talk to him. Like a man to man. Face to face, that was his greatness, the level that he was able to reach that the Rebbeinu Shalom could talk to him and he could actually bear it standing. Says the Torah, though, over here, that by Maimad Har Sinai, Kalal Yisrael was at the level of Nevo like Maisha Rabbeinu, that we were able to hear the Rebbeinu Shalom speaking to us, for those precious moments. Of Kabbalah Satayra, we saw it and heard it with our own eyes. Mamish, like the greatest Nevoah possible. So this was that tremendous Maimad that Klai Yisrael experienced. And as we know from the Swarm Akdashim, every Yiddish in the for all generations was present there. That means me, that means you. We were all there and we all saw this and we saw this revelation. So this is the amazing event that happened in the Parsha. But before that, 
as we know, the name of the parasha is Yisroi, because this parasha starts off by telling us how Yisroi comes to the Machin of Klai Yisroi together with uh, his daughter, Maisha Rabbeinu's wife, Tzipora, and their two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, and they bring Karbonis and the like. Okay, so far, so good. Now, it would seem to us that the next step after describing Yisroi coming would be going straight into Matan Torah. But that's not what happens. In between these two events, there's another interesting episode that the Torah tells us about. It says the Pasuk, It's the next day. The next day of what? So Rashi brings down, it's the day after Yom Kippur, after the final Luchos were brought down. Moshe Rabbeinu sits down to judge Klal Yisrael. He's standing there from morning to night, sitting there, going through the uh, court cases that Klal Yisrael had, the disputes, uh, which were in a moment, it's involving monetary disputes that people had, one with the other. Everyone's coming to Moshe Rabbeinu, taking up his entire day. And Yisrael, the concerned father-in-law, is observing all of this. And finally, he says to Moshe Rabbeinu, what is going on here? What's this all about? And Moshe Rabbeinu explains. You know, I am the leader of Klai Yisrael. They come to me to find out what the halacha is whenever there's a question or a dispute. So says Yisrael to Moshe Rabbeinu, No, that's not good what you're doing. You're going to become weary. You're going to kind of like... Uh, yeah, you're going to get burned out like Chaim said. This is not something you can do on your own. Instead, he gives him an Eitzah. You should find people. Sorry, Alofim. Sorry, Meis. Sorry, Chamishim. Sorry, Asaris. You find individuals who are Chashiva people also. Who can pass on their own. And you appoint them as, so to speak, the middleman. And only when it's a big thing that none of them can answer, then the big things will come to you. And the Pasuk tells us the Maish Rabbeinu followed his lead. His advice, and that's what he did. What exactly, though, is the Torah trying to tell us <coughs> this story? What relevance does it have? <coughs> that's a very nice idea, but what relevance does it have? And why is it here, right before Matan Torah? Rashi brings down the Machlekes and Chazal, if the story with Yisrael happened before Matan Torah, or it happened after Matan Torah. But even if we say it happened after Matan Torah, the Torah decided to put it over here, before the story of Matan Torah. Why? Seemingly, there's some connection between these two events because right after this episode, the Torah goes on to describe Maimad Harsin. I say, what's going on here? And what connection could there possibly be between these two events? So, interestingly, today, you know, you walk into one of these uh, big supermarkets, let's say pomegranate, or maybe not pomegranate, but uh, uh, let's say... Uh, gourmet glot, gourmet glot, or um, uh, you go to Landau's and other other big supermarkets. You know these fancy big supermarkets. So you'll see something very interesting there, and that is that they have like these stations that are not under the name of the supermarket itself, but under a name of, of a different vendor. For example, you know you have Schwartz's over here, the appetizer. So they have their own stand in gourmet glot. And the fellow over there was telling me, uh, Mr. Schwartz, he says to me that for them, they actually pay more rent for that booth than they pay to have a storefront. But it's worth it for them because they're able to collect uh, the, the foot traffic 
So that comes to the growth, to the supermarket, so it's actually, they make more money that way. But the point is that you have these big, big uh, supermarkets, and the owners decided, you know what, instead of me making the sushi, and making the takeout, and making the herring, let me, let me instead uh, give these, yeah, let, let me instead let me let me rent it out to other people who, this is their expertise, now, they'll be the ones selling their products, and that's why you walk into these stores and you have. You have the bakery stand, and you have the herring stand, and you have the takeout stand, and all kinds of interesting things. But the idea is that one person, or even one group of managers, they don't want to focus on everything. Instead, they focus on what their expertise is, and they give it out. The, uh, the other stuff, they give out to the mumchim in that area. There's something also that you notice today when there's a big event. For example, they just had the Hass concert. So they don't run it themselves. Instead, they hired a fellow named Shlemy Steinmetz. He happens to be the son of the Skvera Dayan from Bar Park. And he has a marketing group. And part of what they do is they organize events for you, which means they're going to rent out the hall. It means uh, they're going to take care of the lighting and the stage and all the logistics and the ticket selling. Everything else, they're, gonna, they're basically going to run the entire event for you. And all you have to do, I guess, is you know, raise the money and, and uh, deal with the, uh, the different singers. And you see this all over. You know, if there's a dinner, sometimes a fancy dinner, you're going to have one of these groups also. They're in charge of the whole thing. And, what's that? City Yeah, right, right. City Com, yeah, and other places like that. And again, the idea is that let the Maisad uh, that's behind the event do what they know how to do, which is raise money. As far as the logistics, let the experts take care of that. And this thing is called, in today's world, delegating. Which means... Handing out responsibilities to other people. It's actually a very important thing in the world, in the business world in general. You have today people who are managers, and they have a bunch of people under them. So one of the things that the uh, business experts talk about is you have to know how to be a delegator. You have to know how to give over responsibilities. And it's a very, very important thing because, like Chaim said before, if someone is going to be saying, I'm the manager, which means that everything has to go through me, everything is going to need my approval, I actually have to plan everything. I have to do everything. So what's going to end up happening is, first of all, the workers under you won't have what to do because you're doing everything. And second of all, it's going to lead you very quickly to burnout. And there's studies that show this happening that you know people who weren't able to learn this task, not enough. it's not enough that you're a capable person. It's not enough that you know how to get things done. You also have to know how to actually let go and give over the responsibility to other people. And when you're able to delegate, then what happens is things start flowing much more smoothly. First of all, the other people have what to do. Second of all, there's not so much on your plate. And now, really, between all the minds working together, things can start happening in a very good way. And you can focus on new sales. Exactly. Like Chaim said, you can focus on what's important, which is the bottom line. The problem is, though, that for a lot of people, it's difficult to do. And there are a few reasons for that. One is which that a person feels like, hey, you know, this is my company, or I'm the manager, so I'm supposed to be the one doing it. Not him, and people sometimes feel like they're indispensable. You know, they're the only ones who can get things done. A certain element of ego gets involved there. When you're handing over a task to someone else, it's almost like, you know, what does he know? I'm the one who knows how to get things done. But it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing, it's not a good thing for you. And it's definitely not a good thing for the business that you're involved in. We have to learn how to surrender and let other people do it. And part of that means also, once you give over the task 
to your underlings. <coughs> Whatever it is, you don't have to micromanage. You know, they can report to you from time to time. But don't micromanage. Don't go into the details of how they're getting things done. Because that too ties into a person's ego. Maybe he does things in a different way than you do. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't have an exclusive on getting things done. Lots of people know how to get things done. You know, there's an old expression. The graveyard is filled with indispensable people. You know, so don't micromanage. Instead, let them do things their way. And when the research shows that when the managers are able to be good delegators, the business starts to boom. Because everybody's doing their part, everybody is getting things done, and nobody is working too hard, and in this way, everybody's happy, and the bottom line, like Chaim said, continues to increase. And this is important, it's not only at work, it's important also at home. You know, Baruch Hashem, we all have kids. You know, sometimes it comes sukkah's time, and you know, we have to build a sukkah. Now, some of our kids are bigger a little bit, like, like, uh, like Shmuley over here, you know, ready bar mitzvah. There's nothing wrong with telling your kids, okay, you're in charge of building the sukkah. You know, and you give our responsibilities to them. Now, again, this might a little bit hurt our ego because we feel that we're the only ones who can do it. But at the end of the day, it's not a healthy attitude to have. And other of it, that's part of our job as parents is to give our kids responsibilities so they should learn how to do things. And this way, you know, when the time comes that they're going to be responsible, when they're going to be the ones in charge, they're going to have a house, they'll know how to do things. We don't have to cradle them, we don't have to baby them. Other of it, hand over responsibilities that's part of our job as parents. And as the expression goes, you know, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And that is really a big yesoid for life. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs spoke at the Chabad Shluchim convention some years ago. And he told over his own personal story how he became, you know, the famous person that he became, the chief rabbi of England and the like world-famous person, and he said he really started off, he had very humble beginnings, came from a family that wasn't really strictly from even, and he became close, Chabad Wormakarv, and while he was in university, he became Sharetar Mitzvahs, and he went to the Rebbe, as a, as a Bachar, and the Rebbe said to him, you know, they were talking about the college that he was in, he was in Oxford College in England, and the Rebbe said to him, what are you doing to be Makarv, your fellow brothers, you know, you benefited from Kirov. What are you doing for that? And he said that caught him totally off guard. He never looked at himself as someone who could be Makar of others. So he hemmed and hawed, and the Rebbe says, no, no, this is going to be your job. You have to try to be Makar of people, which he tried to do. And on a visit a few years later, the Rebbe said something even more shocking. He said to him, why don't you go and become a rabbi? Now, this was somebody who was going to be a college professor teaching philosophy. And he looks at the Rebbe and says, me, a rabbi? Like, that's not my trajectory. That's not where... And the words that he used is, that's not where I find myself at this moment. And the Rebbe stopped him. He says, nobody finds themselves in a certain place. You put yourself in the place where you have to be. And he says, you go and you become a rabbi. Which is exactly what happened. He went back to... He went to yeshiva and he, he became... He got smicha and he became a, a pulpit rabbi. And from there, slowly... Things developed and he became the chief rabbi of England, really world famous, somebody who had a tremendous impact on everybody. But he says, Rabbi Sachs, at the end of, of his whole story, so he says what he learned from his interactions with the rabbi was that you have good leaders and you have great leaders. A good leader creates followers. A great leader creates leaders. 
That which was, was his own experience. And this is the aside that we're seeing here in the Parsha. Says Yisrael, Maisha Rabbeinu, You know, with all due respect to you, the greatest man who ever lived, this is not exclusive, your exclusive domain. There are other people also of talents. Other people also have kishrenas. Let them also take over some of the burden. And that's going to be beneficial for them, but also for you. Because this way, you're not going to wilt away. You're not going to burn out. No, you're going to do what you have to do, and they're going to do what they're capable of doing. And it's very interesting. This Lushan of light Tevadavar, we find it in another place in the Torah. You know where we see that? Bereshis. Very good, David. Says the Rebbeinu Shalalam, it's not good for man to be by himself. And the idea is pretty much the same thing. That, you know, a man technically could live on his own and nothing's going to happen, but you're not going to live a full life in such a way. Why so? Because if it's just me, then I see things from my narrow perspective. And I do things in the, in the way that I got used to. But there are other ways of doing things. And there are other attitudes that you might have on your own. Approaches in life and ways of dealing with people that on our own we might think about. Says the I'm going to give you a wife and she's going to broaden, broaden your horizons. She's going to help you out. And she's going to help you realize that it's not just you in the world. <laughs> you know, the world wasn't just created for you. Connected. There's other people also, right? And, and yeah, of course, but the point is though, that even when it's Zaha, the Ezer itself could be done in a way that it's helping the person reach his potential by showing him that, hey, there are more people in the world, it's not just you. And this is really the nature of a human, is that you know when we're single, we think that the world revolves around us. That's how we are. When you get married, all of a sudden you realize, hey, no, 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 I can't just do what I want. I can't get up just when I want, you know, go to places that I want, say things that I want. No, 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 it doesn't work like that anymore. Now, there's someone else in your life, and you have to start learning to be sensitive. And that's something that we've all gone through, and it's a good thing, as the Torah tells us. Interestingly enough, I speak today to a good friend of mine, uh, Tzvi Friedman. He dabbles in Shiduchim with older singles. And he told me, he, he noticed a very interesting phenomenon. He says that, you know, let's say a Bachar, you know, he reaches, let's say, his uh, upper 20s, his high 20s, 27, 28. So, you know, you'll notice that a lot of the demands that they had earlier on when they were 22, 23, when they had just started, of what exactly they're looking for, it starts to fall off to the wayside. You know, they're not so mocked anymore on certain things. He says, and it stays that way for a few years. But once they get like to the level of being like Neltebacher, mid-30s, he says he notices an interesting phenomenon. What happens is, it goes back. It reverts back to the way it was. And not only that, they become even more sticklers. And at this point, if not everything is not exact... Mamish, exactly as they picture it in their mind, everything, all the boxes have to be checked off. Not me, yeah. It gets worse. Yeah, and he explains what, what's going on. He says, so when you're still a bacher, you know, or a younger, you know, in your 20s, so you're able to say, you know what, okay, you know, not everything has to go my way, and it's something we can understand. But a person reaches a certain point in life, that for so many decades, he's living by himself, he does things on his own, he can no longer think about doing things in any other way. So now Mimela, everything has to be perfect, which of course is a problem because a person has to get married. But this is an observation from someone who's seen this time and time again. And I saw this with my own eyes, actually. Once gave a ride to an older Bacher. Nice guy, friendly and everything. 
it was in the thick of the winter, not like this winter, it was a cold winter, and, uh, you know, giving him a ride wherever he needs to get to here in the neighborhood in Flatbush, and he opens up the window, <laughs> the back window. Now, we could feel, and my wife and I were sitting in the front seats, we could feel the, the cold, freezing air coming in. And, okay, you know, so he rolled down the window, and then when he got to his destination, he rolled it back up, he said, thank you, and he left. And my wife pointed out to me, you know, that because he's an elder bacher, and he's not used to thinking about the perspective of others, so this is how he does things. He's called, he's, he feels a little bit uh, uh, too, too warm in the, in, the, in the car, he opens up the window, you know what I mean? Even though it's freezing outside. For him, it's good. He can't really think about the perspective of other people. And I'm not judging anybody because, like we said, you know, this, was, this is what happens after many decades. You gave him a ride. What's that? And you gave him a ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, I don't think this was coming from a bad place. It's just a certain mentality that when we get used to a certain way of doing things, our way, then this is how we do it. And we don't think about other people. They say that the eleven elders, the single, that, oh, I mean, uh, someone who's like, they would rather take... Uh, Someone who was once married before a divorce, they would rather take another divorce as opposed, as opposed to older, older single because they they have they're so stuck in their ways that they you know. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And this is nature. This is human nature. Says the Rebbeinu Don't do it on your own, and get married and learn that the world does not revolve around you. And with work, a person is able to transform his marriage into an experience that really changes his attitude in life and makes it into a whole much broader world. Famous story with Arya Levine. Goes with his wife to the doctor. And he says to the doctor, my wife's foot is hurting us. Now, of course, this is, you know, this is not a level that any of us could, could reach. But the idea is that in the ideal marriage, you know, you're really literally feeling the other pains. Literally. Physically. And when we're able to live life in such a way, then Taka... Life becomes a very, very happy experience. And this really is the Yisoyit that we're seeing over here in the Parsha. And the idea is, again, we have to remind ourselves all the time that as human beings, we're by definition imperfect. We don't know it all. We can't do it all. And that's how the Rabbi Nishalem created us. Interesting story. Rabbi Dr. Tversky was a professor, of course, of medicine, of psychiatry. And... As, as any professor does, doctors, they, they take away their, take around their students in the hospitals to look at the patients. It's called internship. This is before the, the, the interns are actually doctors themselves. They're not able to treat. But they're just observing. And, you know, before they go into the room, so the doctor tells them, you know, about each patient. And then they go in. The doctor speaks to the patient. You know, he looks at the charts. And the, and the students have a chance to observe it. And then after, the, after they leave the room, hopefully after they leave the room, not inside in front of the patient, you know, they'll ask their questions and whatnot. So they're going. They're, so this. So of course he's a psychiatrist. So the patients that he sees are in the psych ward. So before he enters the room, he says, "This patient is one of the most unusual cases that we've ever seen. We haven't been able to get anywhere with him for the past twenty years. Every single day, all day, from morning to night, he sits. He stands rather in the room with his hands up like this. He refuses to sit down or bring his hands down." At night he goes to sleep, and in the morning he wakes up, he does the same thing. He says, nobody knows what to do with him, and, and, you know, this is how he is, but, you know, you should come inside and take a look. There's another interesting case that you'll see. They walk in, and they see the guy standing with his hands up. And one of the students goes over to him, and he says to him, let me help you here. And Dr. Horsky is amazed. You know, nobody ever f- could figure out what's going on. And the student goes over to him, he stands next to him, and he picks up his hands, like this. 
And he says to the fellow, he says, here, now I'm holding it. You can go and rest a little bit. What was happening? He thinks that he's holding up the world. Literally. Literally, he's holding up the world. Now, how is he going to sit down if the whole world standing is dependent on him? It was only when this student, this sensitive student, hopped what he's seeing. So he told him, don't worry, I'm going to help you now. I'm going to give you a hand. I'll hold it now for a few minutes. You go and rest. The guy finally was able to give over the world to this fellow. This story, this beautiful story, is told over by the famous storyteller, uh, Rabbi Yechiel Spiro, cousin of our friend Svi over here. Fascinating story, but the point is that, you know, the, sometimes a person feels that the weight of the world is on him. He's holding up the world, but no. We shouldn't live like that. We're not holding up the world. It's the Rebbeinah Shalom's world. He's in charge. He knows what to do. And he's doing it just fine. And the more we could in, um, ingrain that in our mind, then life is going to be much more calm and much more happy and much easier. Because we now realize that, hey, by default, by definition, I'm imperfect. And by definition, I need others. And by definition, you know, I have to surrender to the Rebbeinah Shalom. And now, finally, we can understand what's happening here in the parsha. The Torah is telling us this thing, this episode with Yisrael. You need, you can't do it on your own, right before Matan Torah, because we think about it. What's the whole idea of Kabbalah Satira? It's realizing that the Rebbeinah Shalom is in charge, and he runs the world, and he has a plan for the world, and he tells us, Klal Yisrael, to be his emissaries, and as we say in the parsha, it says in the parsha, we're the ones who are tasked with carrying out the Rebbeinah Shalom's mission in the world, by following the mitzvahs, by learning the Torah, and by living elevated lives. So a person might come to think, you know, you know, I'm giving up, so to speak, my freedom for you. Hashem, you know, not being able to do what I want, not being able to live, you know, the free life that others are. Says the Rebbeinah Shalom, look at what Yisrael is saying. This is not for you to say that you're running the world and that you're in charge. No, that's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. You need to be submissive to others. And in this particular case, submissive to me, the Rebbeinah Shalom. I run the world, not you. I'm in charge. I'm going to give you the guide and the tools how to live the life that I gave you in this world. And with that, you're going to have a happy and successful life. But remember that it's my world. It's not yours. And we learned that from this story over here with Yisrael telling Moshe Rabbeinu, don't worry, don't worry. The Ebeshter runs the world. He knows exactly what he's doing. Do what you have to do and don't worry about the rest. Everything's going to be fine. And that really is a very important lesson. And that's also for you that reminding ourselves that by definition, we're not perfect. By definition, the Ebeshter doesn't want us to be perfect. He wants us to do our part, to serve him to the best of our abilities, and leave the rest up to him. And then everything is going to be just fine. And that taka is one of the lessons that we see here in the parasha by Kabbalah Satir. I just want to conclude the beautiful story. Jonathan Pollard was interviewed a couple weeks ago by the Israeli television. And he says a very fascinating story. He, as everybody knows, he was an analyst in the Navy. And he discovered that the U.S. intelligence is hiding very important secrets from Israel that have a direct impact on the security of the state of Israel. That Many Arab countries, they're um, building up different uh, chemical weapons and the like, which potentially could be used against Israel. And in spite of the fact that the U- U.S. was committed to sharing this, 
I guess the anti-Semitic people in the intelligence decided against it. And he felt, um, as someone who grew up with a very proud Jewish identity and his parents had always uh, raised them you know, in the shadow of the Holocaust and, and, and they infused their kids, even though they weren't religious per se, with a, a very, very strong Jewish pride and a strong Jew, uh, sense of a Jewish identity, he felt that it's his responsibility you know, to go against his own country, America, for the sake of saving Gideon, and which is what he did. And of course, we all know what happened. He was eventually captured, spent 30 years in prison. Says Pollard, he's being taken to the first prison. The place is called Marion. It's a place in Illinois. It's a maximum security prison. And this is a prison that's designed only for very, very high-profile criminals. As he describes, the other people that were there are either murderers or mafia people, people who are mamish, the worst of the worst. And all of them are there for some, one simple reason, that they refuse to talk. They refuse to t- tell the stories to the authorities to spill the beans of exactly what they did and how they did it and who cooperated with them and the like. And he refused to talk because he didn't want to endanger or whatever, harm other people. So he's saying, as they're approaching this prison, this prison is three feet under the ground. The guard says to him, smell the flowers out here in the yard, look up at the sky, the blue sky, and breathe in the fresh air. Because the only way you're coming out of this place is in a body bag. He said, this is not the place where people come out alive. That's the type of place it is. And he says to the, and, and Pollard says to the guy, he says, actually, I think I will come out alive. And you're not God. And the guard says to him, okay, we'll see. Paul describes how that prison looked like. Three floors under the ground. Every person has his own cell. It's solitary confinement. And the cell is two meters by two meters, which is about six and a half feet by six and a half feet. He says they fed them dog food three times a day. He says he hopes it was dog food, you know, which just gives you an idea of what, of what, kind of, what it looked like, what it tasted like. And the lights are on all the time. On, on, on. Lights are on all the time. These are you know, ways to try to get people to force people to talk. Um, no communication, and there's no books, and there's nothing. So, he says, you're in a situation like this. What can help you from going insane? So he said, he decided to talk to Hashem. You know, he knew there was a God. Again, he wasn't religious per se, but he knew. He says, listen, Hashem, you know, I can't do this on my own. You know what I mean? I want to remain sane, and I want to come out of here. On my own, I can't do it. I need you to help me. And I promise that if you do, I'll start following the Torah and the mitzvahs, which I guess he knew a little bit about. I'm going to do my part, brother. You, Hashem, please, do your part. Keep me sane. And seven years later, Taki was taken out of that prison, transferred to someplace else, which was much, much better conditions. And what happened to the guard? Very good. So Doobie's on top of the game. What happened to the guard? He's on his way out of the prison. He sees the guard. And he says to him, you see, I was right. I did come out alive. And he said, that comment cost him a tooth. Because the guard punched him in the face. And he said it was very painful. But he said it was worth that pain. It was worth the pain to be able to say it to the guard and to see it. And he said he kept his promise to the Rabbi Nishalayim up until today. Hashem, if you do your part, I'm going to do mine to keep the Torah and the mitzvahs. And Baruch Hashem, today he's living a free man in Yerushalayim, recently married to, uh, to his wife. And, and Mr. Esther. Shem, Esther, Esther passed away. But, uh, but he married someone else. And Mr. Shem, you know, he should have... A long and happy life. But the lesson that we see here really is this idea that Rabbi Shalom runs the world and, you know, he just tells us, do what I tell you to do and trust me, you're going to be a right talk. We should all zorcha to live a wonderful life of following the Torah and the mitzvahs, of bringing about Kiddush Hashem and through that be to happiness and bracha 
and everything that we do. Oh,